All right, I think I'll go ahead and get started. So my name is Alyssa Feaster. Um, I'm a pediatrician. I've been in Africa for about 10 years in the rural areas, working um, with Surge for the last six years in Burundi. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience, but also I'm in the process of doing a master's in clinical education and have been researching this particular topic through that course through the University of Edinburgh. So some of my comments will come from articles and such that I've read as a result of that study. So our, ident our outcomes today, our objectives are um, to talk about the, the challenge of brain drain and identify what minimal infrastructure is necessary in order to do healthcare training in rural areas, and then to highlight the lessons learned in my context. So just a brief summary of where I am. So Burundi is a small country in the middle of East Central Africa, just south of Rwanda between Congo and Tanzania. There was a medical school that was started there in 2006. Um, started actually at the request of the president um, because they, they noted there were only 2.6 doctors for every 100,000 people, one of the lowest in the world, and so needed more doctors, so started a medical school. Our team got involved in 2013. Um, and has grown uh, since then. And then we work in the rural teaching hospital, which is about three hours from the capital. Um, it has been the teaching hospital since 2010. So the students come to us for their clinical rotations. Our medical students have all overcome great challenges to get to where they are. Um, this is a survey that I did of, of about 100 of our graduates, 80% Burundian, 20% from other African nations, uh, mostly in our area. Um, you can see that about half of our doctors have lost at least one parent, at least a third of them um, before the age of 18. Most, uh, well, half of our doctors had less than 10 books in their home growing up, and actually most have less than 10 books still. Um, about a quarter have lost a sibling, and 44% of their mothers and 34% of their fathers did not study beyond primary school. So it's quite remarkable that these guys have, have become doctors. They've, they've really come from a long way to get to this position. So talking about brain drain, um, this is an, an old map, but um, basically you can see physicians per capita. There's... Um, where is Africa on this map? Um, it's pretty much non-existent. Um, in comparison, if you look at child mortality, I'm a pediatrician, so that's one of my big focus. Um, obviously, there's huge need. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that the disconnect is related to brain drain, um, but that is a factor. Um, it is a factor that doctors are being trained and then or nurses, healthcare professionals. Um, some studies show that as many as 40 to 50% uh, leave the low-resourced area to go to high-resourced areas. Um, and studies have shown that in areas where there's lower doctor density, there's a higher mortality rate, child mortality rate, maternal mortality rate, et cetera. So what can we do to keep people in lower resource settings, um, local physicians and, and nurses, et cetera. Well, first, let's talk a little bit about brain drain. So I want to make this a little interactive, if I can. So take two minutes, talk to the three, four people around you, and answer this question. Who or what is responsible for brain drain? Can we define brain drain first? <laughs> brain drain is healthcare professionals leaving a low-resourced area to go to a high-resourced area. Yeah. All right, I'm going to bring you back in now. 
So I won't, I won't make you answer. It was more just to help you start thinking about the topic. So the literature talks about push and pull factors. So the pull factors come from high income settings. About a quarter of the, um, you can see about a quarter of the doctors in both the U.S. and the U.K. come from outside of those, of those nations. Um, so there are pull factors of nations depending on other doctors from other places to, to provide health care. The push factors come from the low-income countries, so issues of inadequate salaries, inadequate professional development opportunities, um, lifestyle decisions for family and physician, working conditions, very high patient volumes, very low resources and staff to deal with those situations. Here's an example. So this guy is Denny Mukwege. He won the Nobel Peace Prize last year. He's an OBGYN um, who actually did his medical school in Burundi and then did his residency in France. So this is from his book, which I have translated into English here. Um, so he says at the end of residency, we began, he and his wife, began to think about the future. Should we really return to Zaire, not Congo, now Congo, now that we were used to life in France? His wife said, I'd like to stay, for particularly for the kids. I'm thinking about their schooling. It will be much better for them to pursue their studies here. Mukwege says, this option made sense. The hospital where I was working offered me a job with a salary 100 times more than what awaited me in Zaire. Now, missionaries certainly take a pay cut to go overseas, but more in the factor of 6 to 10 times less, not 100 times less. Um, they had established friendships and a good life uh, in France. He goes on to say, but we couldn't return, we forget the reason we came here. Um, if he stayed in France, he would betray his word. He couldn't think only of the promise to himself, but to all who had believed in him and made this possible. France didn't need him. Um, in contrast, he'd forgotten, he hadn't forgotten that it was extremely gratifying to treat and help women in the mountains of rural Congo. His wife comes back with, I could stay here with the kids and you could visit me from time to time. Um, <laughs> And he says, but we discussed it and quickly came to the conclusion that this plan wouldn't work. Too complicated, too expensive. Finally, we understood that the return of the whole family was the only reasonable choice. So he made a very hard decision, um, and he did go back. He won the Nobel Peace Prize related to his work with um, victims of sexual violence from war crimes in, in eastern Congo. Um, but my question related to this talk today is, Maybe the decision would have been a lot easier if he didn't have to go to France to do his OB residency, um, if he had had the opportunity to be trained to be a competent quality physician um, in his local setting. Um, there aren't OB residencies in rural eastern Congo that I'm aware of, but um, that would be the hope long term. So when you talk about brain drain, you've got an ethical debate with two sides of the coin. So on the one side, you have the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the United Nations put forth in 1948, where every human has a basic right to leave any country, including their own. Um, so that's on the one side. Um, there's this book by Brock and Blake, where the first half of the book, Brock says, it's okay for governments to restrict immigration of their skilled people um, in order to provide for the greater good, so to require service before they leave or require working in an underserved area, that kind of a thing. Blake says, no, that's coercion. That's always wrong, and you can't force sainthood on people. So that's the second half of the book. So that's sort of one aspect of the ethical debate. Is it okay to restrict someone's immigration, restrict their individual rights to leave one place to go to another place? 
The other side of the coin is global community social accountability. So this is the basic human rights to equal basic liberties. So education, health care, etc. Basic liberties for all persons. Um, so this article by Mpofu talks about whether the best point is to focus on the individual justice, so the right of the individual to make their life decisions, um, which would be the American route, right, um, versus the, the global justice focus. So prioritizing those who are the least advantaged, those who have the least access to care, um, as the first moral priority. Um, of note, the World Health Organization has put a sustainable development goal out there of universal health coverage. And so Impofu and these others in this article would argue that that is where our emphasis should be if you have to prioritize one of these ethical principles over the other. That's up for debate. Um, this is, these are our doctors in rural Burundi um, as of about a month ago. Um, how do we keep our Burundian doctors three hours from the capital Really, there's not even a town uh, where we are. Um, what, what can we do to help encourage them to maintain uh, their current role, which is providing excellent health care um, in our region? Well, there are several interventions that have been tried, and I, I realize this is a busy slide, but we're going to focus on what's in the middle. Um, so things that have been tried over the years are particular selection of applicants, so people who are maybe from a rural area, who have an interest in, in serving in an underserved place, location of the education, um, what kind of curriculum is used. Coercion is on here. Incentives is below it. So in the U.S., it's common for doctors who serve in an underserved area to get a higher salary than those who don't. Um, support, support opportunities. So we're focusing on the one in the middle. So there is some evidence that rural residency programs uh, increase the number of physicians who practice long-term in rural areas. It's a very difficult thing to prove, though. Obviously, you can't randomize these studies. There's not possible to say, oh, these two, we're going to send you to rural Burundi, and you get to go live in New York. Like, that's, it's not really a, an ethical thing to do. Um, so it's hard to say if you show that they stay in long-term in rural areas, Maybe they were already predisposed to do so. Um, but it is recommended by the World Health Organization as a way to address brain drain. Um, there's another thing proposed by Eileen Hurst, um, and this is, I would say, maybe questionably ethical. So they emphasize the need for access to care in these places where there aren't enough healthcare professionals. Like I said, three doctors per 100,000 people in Burundi. They say, rather than giving people degrees, what if we train them in a way that is relevant to the local context only. Um, but then they don't have a degree, so they can't leave and go elsewhere. I think that's probably not so ethical. <laughs> um, it has happened over the years, and we actually have, um, you know, when the first missionaries started our hospital in the 1940s, there, there weren't any Burundian nurses. They didn't exist. Um, and so they trained local people um, to do the job. We do still have a few of the older, older people around who were trained years ago before there were nursing programs in our, in our area. And I would say that those guys are the best at getting IVs and our tiny little preemie babies. Um, they have decades of experience. They are great at doing patient communication. Um, and so they certainly have uh, skills to offer 
The challenge is they have no other options. They, for one thing, they don't speak French. They only can do work in Kirundi um, for the most part. And they're stuck. They have no options to go elsewhere for a better, a better salary or a better situation. Um, so it does certainly increase access to care. Um, but I would say you have to be careful um, with, with something like that. Um, now, certainly I'm going to talk about how to train in a way that is relevant to the context, um, but maybe not limiting someone's opportunities. That, some would say that would be paternalistic. Um, some would say it would even go so far as to say slavery, um, to say that you make someone stay in one place um, when they might want to go elsewhere. Now, we talked about... Um, service in, in underserved areas. Seventy countries actually require service in underserved areas of their um, health care workers. Um, so this is a very common thing done in the world. Um, Pre-commitment has been used as a, as a surrogate as well. So healthcare professionals tend to be more altruistic early on. How many people wrote medical school essays on how they wanted to help people? Um, your nursing school essays, I'm sure, are the same. Um, and so catching people early when they, this is one of the great things about this conference, we have so many pre, pre-career people here, uh, students, trainees, etc. This is the chance, this is the time to commit to missions, to commit to working in underserved areas long term. Um, because as you go on, certain cynicism tends to creep in for a lot of folks. Um, now, the debate of is this paternalism, slavery, or coercion, or is this legit, the opposite side of the coin is that altruism is a common and perfectly legitimate human sentiment. So let's, let's capitalize on that. That's okay. Um, but uh, anyways, others would say, no, they should always be able to get out. Um, there should always be a, a, a chance. And so there's, there's a balance there. So moving on to what do you do if you do provide training in rural areas? So we've, we've established that it, it can be used as a way to help increase healthcare professionals in places where they don't have enough healthcare professionals. Um, so, what kind of content should be taught? Well, if you look at this is General Medical Council from the UK, this is uh, ACGME from the US, core competencies. Look at this list here professionalism, communication skills, uh, you know, maintaining trust, safety, quality. These are things we want from our healthcare professionals no matter where they are. These are applicable across all contexts. Now, in our setting, uh, our doctors have never seen a potassium level. They've never managed hyperkalemia because our lab doesn't do potassium levels. Um, they've never seen a blood gas. They've never run a ventilator. Um, but there's an opportunity to teach them skills like interpersonal skills, uh, like professionalism, like how to learn medical knowledge that will be relevant for them long term. So there's a balance between teaching them what they need to know today to take care of a kid at Kibuyeho Hospital with malaria um, versus what they will need to know hopefully in a few years when advanced capacity comes to our region of the world. Um, and I think the emphasis should be on training lifelong learners. So that's pretty countercultural. Um, there's, a, there's a huge power distance cultural value of hierarchy where the professor has all the answers. You don't question the professor. The professor doesn't 
when we first moved there, they told us we were the first professors they had ever heard say, I don't know, um, as in, I don't know, but I'm going to look that up. Um, and so demonstrating a culture mentorship over the long term of we are all still learning, we are all still gaining new information, we are all still improving in the way that we care for patients, um, those skills are going to transfer as the country's capacity develops um, in, in whatever region you're in. And obviously things like teamwork and professionalism are going to be relevant no matter where you are or what you're doing. So when we first came to Burundi, our team investigated um, joining this, this, hospital, this medical school. Um, and my teammates took a picture of this chalkboard. I know you can't really read it, but there's things on there that were being taught to the medical students, like Swangans catheters, uh, bleomycin, <laughs> Maybe not so relevant to work in Burundi, um, but there is, a, there is a balance. So we actually do have, this is an ophthalmology surgery. Um, our hospital actually does have some pretty advanced things. We talked about VP shunts. Uh, they're, they're doing VP shunts at our hospital. They're doing neurosurgery. They're doing retina laser eye surgery, that, not LASIK, but <laughs> laser uh, for, other, for other causes. Um, of retina disease. So there is an opportunity to train some more advanced things. Um, but in general, we want this to be a more, an opportunity to teach in a more interactive way things that are relevant locally but that can be built on as time goes on. So we focus on things like helping babies breathe, this, the course for neonatal resuscitation that's saving lives around the world um, and uh, makes a huge impact on, on the region. So my mom is a teacher. Um, she uses this phrase, Velcro knowledge. Um, so basically, teaching students things that they don't actually need to know today, but they will need to know someday. And if they've already heard of it, then they have something for it to stick to. Um, and so we try to balance teaching things that are relevant today and teaching things that, as a doctor in 2019, they really should know something about. It tends to, it's common that people have some misconceptions. So what I hear commonly from my Burundian students are things like, I want to be a cardiothoracic surgeon someday. Great, there's a huge need for cardiothoracic surgery. Of course, there, there is no surgery for congenital heart disease in, in the whole country. Um, people, there's, there hasn't been dialysis until recently. There hasn't been any chemotherapy. So there is need for that, but sometimes people don't understand all that is involved with that. So I, this is just three slides of an example of what I taught recently to our, our first postgraduates. Um, we don't have residency program yet. We hope to start PACS in January um, for surgery residency training program, but we did start what's essentially a rotating internship. It hasn't existed in the country before, but we have now 12 um, recent medical school graduates who are rotating through medicine, surgery, OB, and pediatrics. And so for one of their lectures recently, I showed them this picture. Um, and, you know, they want to be cardiothoracic surgeons, they don't realize all of the aspects of what that means. So these drips, we don't have any pumps for any drips. Um, we don't have any ventilators. The nursing personnel, the perfusionist, the lab tech, all of that is, it's not just one doctor going off to get surgery training. Um, there's so much more involved. Um, open, you know, heart-lung bypass machines, that kind of a thing. There is a, a new cardiothoracic surgeon in the capital, but he's not, he doesn't have a heart-lung bypass, and so he can only do basically PDA closures, that kind of a thing. So we talked about this. We talked about this with two articles 
from Africa. Um, and what are our options? Should we just focus on albendazole for deworming? Should we focus mostly on vaccinations and clean water? Those are obviously crucial and, and life-saving interventions. Or is this a goal one day? Um, this was a discussion with our medical students, and I think it can be both. It doesn't have to be either or. Um, this article talked about the fact that most low-middle-income countries are still focusing on things like tuberculosis, malaria, HIV, etc., um, and yet there are chronic diseases that could be addressed um, if, if the resources were available for it. So what these were questions we talked together about what are some of the approaches mentioned for improving cardiac care in Africa, what are the personnel and materials needed, um, so not just the surgeon, but what are all the other people needed, and what are the barriers to care. Um, and you can see this was a study from Kenya, which actually focused on Tenwick Hospital, where I worked for two years before going to Burundi, and where they have done 300 open-heart surgery cases with a 1% perioperative mortality rate. I mean, that's incredible. Um, this was a little girl I cared for who had a rheumatic heart disease and had a valve replacement, and her life was saved by one of these 300 cases. So it's not to say that you can't do that, but it's important to discuss these things in an open way with our students, with our graduates, um, so that they understand um, what the issues are to discuss with them. So that's a bit on content. So moving on to stakeholders. Um, some of the stakeholders in discussing rural medical education are obvious. Um, you know, you have your obvious hospital administrators, your Ministry of Health, Ministry of Higher Education folks, um, the potential trainees. But what I want to focus on is the families. So in rural areas, one of the big factors to keeping people there is what job opportunities are there going to be for their spouses? What schooling opportunities are there going to be for their kids? What are their social opportunities? Um, and so these are very important stakeholders to take into account. Um, what housing are they going to be satisfied with? You know, what, what are the things that we can do to help, help people consider um, a sustainable lifestyle um, long term in a rural area? So COSEXA, um, the College of Surgeons of East, Central, and Southern Africa, has actually very specific criteria for beginning surgical residency programs in rural areas. And you can see they're listed up there, at least two consultant faculty physicians in the specialty with at least two additional ones in complementary specialties, um, complexity of patients and procedures, places where you have capacity for blood transfusion, hematology, intensive care units, and then a robust educational curriculum. So those things are kind of common sense. Um, and, and relevant. Um, um, recruiting people to participate in rural programs um, is, is very important. There is evidence that history of living rurally is predictive of staying in a rural area long term. I will say, um, there's this article here by Eileen Bernhausen, um, that pre-commitment is a surrogate for that. And so I would say that that worked for me. So I was in, um, I grew up in urban America um, and went to East Tennessee Medical School where they had a rural primary care track. And I knew I wanted to work with the underserved long term. And I ended up committing to do the rural primary care track throughout my four years of medical school. Um, in the end, I didn't end up staying in Appalachia, which was probably the preference of my school. Um, but I am still working in, the, in a rural area long term. Um, and having made that decision at age 21, 
um, when I was finishing college and, and planning and starting medical school. Um, I don't know if that would have been the same decision I would have made four years later. I'm not sure, or eight years later after residency. Um, but it was a good experience for me to have that training, that curriculum focused on rural health care um, and focused on how to use limited resources um, in a judicious way. So scholarships are commonly used um, as a way of, of bonding. So, you know, you serve, the U.S. military uses it all the time. Like, so you serve, you get four years of your university paid for, you serve four years um, of the time. Um, that's a common thing that's used. Uh, other incentives um, are good for keeping people like developing career, op career development opportunities in that local setting. Of course, if we're able to start a PACS residency program in rural Burundi, well, then we're going to need faculty. And so that would be a good opportunity for career development for our graduates, um, for some of them. Giving them training in how to work in this setting. Um, so how to write grants to get resources that would help them. Um, mentoring them, advising them on schooling options for their children, and providing appealing house, housing. There's a study from Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, that physicians who graduated from a rural medical school were more likely to practice long-term in a rural area. Interestingly, they were also less likely to do a specialty, um, and I think that's related to the fact that there aren't as many rural specialty training programs, residency programs. Um, so that's certainly a need around the world. So what are the counter arguments? What are the potential pitfalls? Well, like I said, you can't do randomization. So participants self-select. So it's hard to say for sure if this will, it's hard to prove that this will decrease brain drain. The other possibility is that the participants will finish the training and then leave. Well, that's, that's going to be a risk. Um, and I think you just kind of have to accept that. Like, we're, we're not planning that everybody will stay. Um, some, will, some will leave, and some will go on to do amazing things in other parts of the world, and that's, that's perfectly fine. Um, we hope to keep at least a couple uh, long term, and thankfully in our setting we have been able to keep one, uh, to re recruit a, a Burundian surgeon and a Burundian ophthalmologist who both did their residency tra training programs in other countries and came back to us. The other concern that some people would uh, talk about is that some participants will be inadequately trained for a 2019 standard of care. So do people need to know, do doctors need to know how to manage hyperkalemia? Probably. Um, and that it's really hard to learn something, how to manage DKA, for instance, uh, if you've never seen electrolytes. Um, it's hard to learn something that you've never seen when you're just learning it from a book. Um, and so sometimes additional training will be needed before they go to another setting. So um, I would say our focus is probably on training people with a standard of competency relevant to East Africa. Um, our medical school, we're, we're working on getting accredited by the, by the East Africa accreditation uh, place. So we're not, you know, it's different maybe than some, some U.S. standards, but um, for the most part, for regional standards, that would be the goal. Um, but like I said, having Velcro knowledge to where when dialysis is available, they would have more ideas of, of that kind of a thing. Um, yeah, we already talked about the, the fourth one there. Um, so finances is a main consideration. So what do we do about 100 times salary differential? <laughs> That's a hard one. Um, I would say one of the big things is to somehow develop intrinsic motivation amongst our trainees um, rather than extrinsic motivation. So the incentives, the paying back time, all that kind of thing, 
it's helpful in the short term, but for people to stay 10, 20 years, they really need intrinsic motivation, um, some reason to stay in their own heart and, and thoughts. And so I would say that's related to mentorship, discipleship, um, mon modeling altruism, um, caring for the least of these. Um, there certainly are lifestyle advantages as well to living near family and speaking, working in a place where you understand the language and culture. Um, but discipleship and mentorship through, I think, a transformational leadership style, so coming alongside trainees and motivi motivating them to a shared vision. Um, so role modeling, leading by example, um, inspiring and encouraging during difficult times, giving good feedback, all of these educational skills that are important for every setting, um, but can really make a huge difference for individuals as they make these very difficult decisions um, for what they're going to do long term. And then stimulating trainees intellectually to active learning, so providing opportunities for them uh, to continue learning, providing, you know, internet uh, resources, that kind of thing, subscriptions to medical databases. Um, this is our Bible study, and these are some of our doctors at a Christmas party. Um, and I would say that these are kind of the most rewarding things that I have that I have been participated in um, is being working. Growing together, um, sharing together uh, in homes, um, praying together and uh, struggling together with some of the challenges of high child mortality rates and um, not having the medicines that we would like to have to care for people. And so talking through those things together on the same page um, with our trainees is really what makes a difference long term um, in helping them develop empathy. Um, these are a couple of our medical students, um, actually the ones at the top trained in, they started their medical school in Cameroon and then Cameroon closed all of their private medical schools and so they um, were four or five years in and sort of suddenly stuck with no opportunity to become a doctor. So they actually crossed the continent and came to Burundi. We had about, we have about 20 to 30 Cameroonian medical students um, and they have never seen malnutrition and poverty like we see in Burundi. So Burundi has been called the hungriest country in the world according to the Global Hunger Index. Um, these are all mothers here in our outpatient malnutrition program who come twice a week. Some of them walk as far as six hours to get there um, to get porridge, an egg, some support. We do some ways, some education, um, some Bible storying with them, that kind of a thing. Um, but these urban doctors um, come and, and develop empathy through this opportunity. So at first, um, when the medical students would come up from Bujumbura, they were shocked by the poverty. Even those who had grown up in Burundi, they'd never seen poverty like this. And um, at first, I had them prepare teaching sessions on good nutrition for these mothers. And then we ended up flipping it on its head. So these mothers have been coming to this program for a long time. They, they actually know nutrition. It's just that they don't have the resources to buy you know, pro high protein food for their kids. And so we flipped it. And so we had the mothers teach the students. Um, and I did this several times. And every time I debriefed the students and they're like, oh, wow, these mothers really care about their, about their kids. Yes, of course they care about their kids. What are you talking about? Um, but they were shocked. Um, they had never really considered. They always just thought it was, it was ignorance. It was, you know, not, not making wise choices with their resources, that kind of a thing. Um, and so I have a current medical student who 
has developed such, she's actually a, an intern now, who's developed such a heart for this that she actually recently asked me, this little girl just keeps getting admitted to the malnutrition program. Can I just take her home and feed her for a year? <laughs> Which, obviously taking her away from her family is probably not the best plan, but it was a very sweet, thoughtful gesture on her part. And we are able to facilitate her helping this family um, in, a, in a practical way. Um, but she's, she's Burundian. She, she's grown up in Burundi. Um, and this is, this is huge. I mean, this is her showing, being Jesus, um, to the least of these and, and coming alongside them. We even do it with the missionary kids. So the, the right side, the right picture there, that's little um, Alma, who's eight years old. Um, so we have a sickle cell clinic. Um, we have about 50 kids who come about four times a year for a sickle cell clinic. And we do uh, teaching with them. We do a Bible story. And then we see them all. They kind of support one another. It's a bit of a, a support group kind of a thing. So Last month, we had all the missionary kids learn about sickle cell disease in school and then come up and do a teaching session and play with the kids, color with them, do a you know, Bible story with them. And they, learn, they catch on, too. Um, you know, that these are kids just like them. And um, it's not just that, that, that things are not the same in all parts of the world. We all are waiting for the day when God will make all things new. Um, and yet, in the meantime, baby steps of showing love, of caring for those around us, is, is something that we can model and that we can, we can work together to do. So the motto of our university, this is determined by the African leadership who started the university, is facing African realities. Um, so this is a part of any endeavor you might have in starting rural training programs in any field. Um, when we first got involved with Hope Africa University, there were 30 students per class. And then while we were in French language school, um, we heard that they were accepting 100 students. And our team was like, oh, no, that's way too many. There's no way that we can um, train that many. They're not going to have enough experience clinically, et cetera. Our hospital's too small for that big of a group. Um, we wrote letters. We you know, wrote emails. We tried to talk to the movers and shakers to get this changed. In the end, the government matriculation process changed. There was one class that accepted 100, and then the next two classes accepted zero. <laughs> so we ended up, all of that was, was really not necessary in the end. And then now we're back to 20 to 30. Um, so this is, this is reality. Things change. You can't control it. You can't plan for it. Um, our African colleagues understand this so much better than we do. Um, and so... Flexibility, obviously, is the name of the game. Another thing that happened recently is that, so initially, Hope Africa University was a seven-year undergraduate program. So they finished secondary school, do seven years as combined uh, undergraduate and medical school, um, and then their doctors at the end. Well, then the government changed it to be a six-year program plus one-year internship. Our Hope Africa University medical students graduated the six-year program, but there was no internship. Um, and we tried to start one, but we couldn't get the right approval all the way up the chain and back down again. Um, and so our, our graduates were kind of stuck. Like, what do we do? We don't have a, an approved degree at this point. Um, it takes time. We actually now do have 12, essentially, interns um, that were most of them in this category. Um, and so little by little, um, things, things change. Um, 
in 2015, there was a political crisis in the country, and we lost almost all, the, like I said, about 20% of our students are not Burundian, so they all left, um, and most of the missionaries left. Um, so these things are also realities. Um, like I said, teaching without electrolytes, blood gases, ventilators, etc. I will say there's an element of redemption with that. Um, so I was just telling someone recently at the surge booth that um, I may not be able to help this kid with leukemia because there is no chemo in the country. There's, I can't even actually confirm the diagnosis because they can't get bone marrow biopsies or anything like that. But I can make the diagnosis and I can teach my medical student or my intern about leukemia in the hopes that years from now, when there are more resources, they can actually care for patients. And so I may not be able to help this particular one, but down the road, there's a, there's a redemptive effect um, of, of education. The other side of that is that I can also model compassionate care, praying with the family, explaining the diagnosis in a culture where that's not usually done, um, but in a culturally sensitive way. I'm not going to be quite as blunt as I would be in a U.S. setting, um, but explaining to the mother not to take them to the traditional healer and spend all their family's resources where all the other kids aren't going to go to school for the next few years um, when there's really not a lot of hope for this particular one, unless God does a miracle. So that's usually what I pray or I explain to the family. Sometimes God heals on this earth. Sometimes he heals in heaven. Um, and so these sorts of things can also be modeled for the doctors and the students. And, and that makes a difference. But we do also want them to know that ventilators exist. Um, so little by little, they will have some um, understanding. Uh, other realities is that um, sometimes expats leave. Sometimes uh, missionaries are asked to teach more and more courses because we're free. Um, and there's a, you know, we're asked to teach a, a basic science course, anatomy or something like that, um, because the surgeon could teach anatomy, right? Well, the surgeon has a few other things to do. Um, and so those, that's a bit of a balance with our, with our partners. So our team is from the beginning and continues to be working under national partnership. We were invited there by the Burundian rector of the university, the bishop of the church. We continue to work under those folks. Um, and so there's, a, there's discussion, there's dialogue that has to happen over time. Um, in our setting, the language of instruction is French and English, um, although of the graduates I surveyed, about half of them prefer Kirundi uh, socially. Um, so that's tricky, right? So they're, everybody's learning in a second language. I'm teaching in French, which is obviously not my most comfortable language. Um, they're learning in French um, or English. Either one is not, they're not as comfortable with as they are in Kirundi for the most part. Um, so this, these, are, these are things that have to be dealt with. But the exciting thing is that we recently surveyed our graduates and 96% are working or studying in Africa. Um, so for the most part, they've been able to stay. And they are also in every province in Burundi. So they're not just in the capital working at the private hospital. Um, they are all over uh, the country. So that's very exciting. We were very um, thrilled to learn that um, when our, our dean of our medical school recently did that study. Um, Okay, so I talked about our first postgraduate training program. I would recommend uh, this book, uh, Global Humility. Um, this is key to any of this, right? So having, um, being humble learners, developing trust over time, not coming in with all the answers. Um, our, our mission's tagline is grace at the fray. So we see fray in our lives 
continually every day. We see Frey in the lives of the students that we work with and the lives of the patients around us. That's where a grace in the gospel makes an impact. Um, and it's even in us demonstrating repentance and humility, um, not having all the answers, saying, I don't know, but I'll look that up. Um, and, and respecting the cultural setting um, is key. There's a short video here. I hope you can hear it, which just will show you our context a little bit more. In the mountainous rural farmlands of the poorest, hungriest nation on earth, there stands a hospital, founded before the first genocide, before independence, before the last world war on a single premise. Hope. We're not the best people for this job. Our students are. They hear, speak, sense, and feel what we cannot and will not. Kibuye isn't huge right now. And it's quite Not much, besides thousands and thousands of needy people. But in an unprecedented move, Hope African University, a premier Christian African university, named this place as their primary teaching site for their medical and nursing schools. So we're planning, designing, and building the facilities that will teach and heal Africans for generations to come. The students come from everywhere, and for many of them, raised in the cities. This place is quite a shock. It's unexpected, but we want to help them grapple with the needs of their own country. It's about caring and teaching at the same time. It's about doing it and modeling it. Facing African realities, even as they're gaining the tools needed to deal with those realities. Nothing is more sustainable than education. Knowledge and ideas, faith, hope, love. These are the only resources that grow the more we share them. It's more than just bringing specialists from around the world here to teach and heal in rural Burundi. We are only interested in this work so far as we can raise up a generation of societal leaders and community servants. From Africa, for Africa. All right, so that was a summary of uh, <laughs> what I've been talking about. All right, so my conclusion is that rural medical education can make a difference as an alternative to brain drain. Um, and that there is value in prioritizing those with greatest needs, so sort of emphasizing the global community aspect of that ethical debate, um, while also allowing for freedom for individual decisions. Obviously, people are in different places, and so um, not coercing them, um, but giving them the opportunity, um, inviting them to the opportunity uh, to caring. For, for those in most underserved areas. Like I said, we're starting surgery residency program in January and hopefully family medicine in a couple of years. Um, and we'll see how that goes. So these are my references, um, which I'm happy to share with you later if you're interested. Um, thank you so much. I'll pause there and uh, get some questions. Yeah. Oops, sorry, I forgot to turn that back on. All right, anybody have any questions? Yes. Um, how does tele do you guys use any sort of telemedicine to reach out in rural areas? Uh, do you incorporate that in your medical education at all? So we haven't used telemedicine, but we well we do send emails, pictures to dermatologists in the states, that kind of a thing. But um, we we just started teleeducation actually. So. Um, for our medical students, they have some courses that are required that they may not, we may not have faculty to teach. So, for example, an ENT course. Um, so Dr. Jim Smith, who's there, um, actually was involved recently in teaching this course from the U.S. Um, and because we now have solar power, um, thanks to our engineer who's over there, um, we have better Internet now to where we can do that kind of a thing um, and, and have a reliable setting for that. So yeah, it's not as ideal 
you know, it'd be better to have an ENT who works long-term in Burundi and who understands the, the context and all, but it's, the students need the course, and so it's a great, it's a great way to provide that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rice, uh, Democrat from Congo. Oh, great. Uh, I have a question. You mentioned that you were able to attract a couple of uh, Burundian surgeons, cataract surgeons. Mm-hmm. How did you do that, and what's the financial arrangement? That's a great question. Um, so, yeah, so um, Dr. Allianz did his PAX residency program in Gabon. Um, and he's originally from Burundi. He was in the first graduating class of Hope Africa University. And then Dr. Tony did his ophthalmology residency in Tanzania. I think he was in the second class of Burundi, um, Hope Africa University. So they all along had intended to come back. Um, and we maintained relationship and connection with them over, over the time they were away. Um, Dr. Allianz's residency was actually um, funded through MedSend, um, who are here, um, and so they, they have a nationals program now. So that was part of that. And so PAX has an arrangement where they, they help facilitate the placement after PAX um, for at least the first couple of years. Um, so thankfully, we were able to get him for now. Now, the challenge is he's got a, he had a three-year-old when he moved to uh, Kibuye. Now he's got a five-year-old um, who's in kindergarten. And so um, she's currently doing kindergarten with one of our missionary kids. But our missionary kid school is, is all in English. I mean, they do learn French and Kirundi just as classes, but they don't, they don't study really in those languages. And so for them long-term, those are big questions for their family. Are they going to need to find a schooling opportunity for her and for their next kids to where they can stay in Burundi and have opportunities for university, et cetera. Um, so we were actually able to find a job for his wife, though, at the hospital. So that worked out really well. Um, so these are the, the lifestyle considerations. Salary-wise, it's been really hard because um, salaries are way beyond missionary discussion. That's, way, that's beyond us. We don't have any say in that. And, for example, the surgeon can't make more than the medical director um, or the people in Bujumbura. So there's, there's like a, a standard that has to be set sort of regionally. Um, and, yeah, the conclusion is they, they took a huge pay cut to take this post, and we hope we can keep them <laughs> with some other incentives like schooling opportunities, et cetera. Um, but, yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with any um, similar models but for nursing education in rural areas? There's lots of nursing schools in rural areas, okay. yes. Um, I know Tenwak Hospital has a nursing school. A lot of hospitals have nursing schools. We actually do take, we have nursing students um, who come from both secondary school nursing students and university level nursing students. Um, and so we are involved in, in teaching them as well. Um, but our Getting licensed as a nurse is sometimes more difficult, depending on the place. Um, but we have a nurse here, actually, um, who's Krista Vader. Um, so she, uh, she's been involved in getting our chemotherapy program started for kids with retinoblastoma, um, which is an eye cancer. Um, so sort of a unique niche, um, which was where we were able to find a good spot for her. We have another nurse who's doing primarily lactation. Um, so it's a little different in that it's not, you, know, you have to be a little bit more creative with what your options are. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just make one comment that <coughs> I know at Bongo Hospital in Gabon, they're looking for somebody to come to do nursing education, and the same thing at Harker Hospital in Egypt. So there you go. A lot of opportunities. Yeah, I know there's. 
There's some organizations downstairs that have nursing too. So, yeah. First of all, I'm from Harper. Okay, there you go. <laughs> Recruiting going on here. Excellent. <laughs> um, but second of all, how did you go through the accreditation process for Yeah. Um, so first we needed to get accredited in Burundi and then through East African community. Um, so we're actually currently also trying to get so we are the teaching hospital for our university, but the government is not yet recognized. Well, government recognizes us as a district hospital. So we, we just had the Minister of Higher Education come out. Um, so there's, there's so much red tape and paperwork to get these kinds of things done. And a lot of it is context-specific, too. So some of the things like... Um, for the EAC, some of their concerns about getting us accredited were we had some of our basic science classes taught by faculty who weren't primarily located at our university but were at the national university. They would come and teach a class but not be full-time with us. And so recruiting long-term basic science people, we were able to get a lab. We needed a lab. But then we didn't have anybody that knew how to teach in the lab um, or how to facilitate using the lab. Um, it's... The EAC required anatomy with cadavers. Burundi didn't allow cadavers. So, you know, there's all kinds of things like that that just have to be sorted out. Um, we do have graduates who have been able to practice medicine in other countries, and so their diploma has been recognized. Um, but it, um, each, it's on a case-by-case -case basis, essentially. Yep. Yeah. Uh, I'm from DRC Congo. Oh, great. Do you know Mukwege? Yes. Excellent. Yeah, best wow. Yes. I'm uh, jealous of you. He's an amazing person. Yes. <laughs> I just read his book. <laughs> My question is this. You are in Burundi. You are mm -hmm. just at the door. We are border with Burundi. Yes. Is it how you are thinking maybe to expand your mission to come to our... <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, we do actually have a, a partner hospital in Congo called Nundu. Oh, I've been there. You've been there, yes. So Dr. the same Marks. people that run our Dr. hospital Marks, are there. You work with them? Dr. Marks, exactly. Yeah, yes. I, I, in July is why I came here. Nice. July was uh, uh, facilitating big um, like mission in, with God Docs, uh, yeah. global outreach doctors in here in the United States. Nice. And then we, we partner with the hospital. Um, Churches, churches uh, Methodist Nundu Hospital, okay. and all the Methodist Church Nundu also included in, and we visit that area, and I was looking for maybe to expand, maybe to come to Nundu, and after Nundu we have the other hospital. Yeah, there's great opportunity for expanding, and that's yes. that's the beauty of our graduates. So they're the you know. We have a graduate here, actually, so uh, maybe you could recruit Dr. Chris Lee there. Um, but, uh, so these guys are actually, you know, they're, they're the hope for the future. They're the ones who are going to make a huge difference in the region, and it's really exciting. Actually, Dr. Chris Lee there has a, has a great organization that he's, uh, he's involved with in providing care in rural underserved areas. Um, we trained him, so we don't work with him now, but he, uh, he was trained at Hope Africa University. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Medtech training, are you doing any of that now? No, I don't think there is any of that um, in Burundi that I'm aware of. Yeah. Medical technology for the labs. That's uh, yeah. 
It is a hard thing. I'm going to talk a little about that in my next talk. Um, but uh, capacity tends to grow un unevenly. So, you know, the surgery department has grown in leaps and bounds, but the lab is basically the same as it was six years ago. Um, so there's, there's challenges in building capacity, and um, that's one of our big hopes for the next 10 years is to develop things more evenly across the, across the board. Questions? All right, thank you all so much. I'll be up here for a few minutes if you have anything else. <laughs>